IBEC, the voice of Irish business. Welcome back to our IBEC Responds mini-series on COP27. In this episode, Dr. Neil Walker, IBEC Head of Infrastructure, speaks with Stephen Prendable, Head of Sustainability at EY Ireland and who is currently attending COP27. They discuss financial liability for loss and damage, which is proving to be a highly controversial issue in this year's negotiations. They also highlight recent groundbreaking agricultural research aimed at ensuring better food security for communities whose crops and livestock are impacted by climate change. But they start the conversation by discussing that commitment made by developed countries 13 years ago to donate 100 billion US dollars per year to developing countries by 2020. For a variety of complex reasons, this money has not flowed as quickly as expected. There are questions about which developed countries should commit the most money and which developing countries should receive the most. Also, many countries are worried about writing a so-called blank check to atone for the behaviour of previous generations. And the list goes on. And while these conversations are being had, that figure of $100 billion per annum increasingly appears too small to address the problems it was designed to solve. Stephen Prendival begins by unpacking some of the many issues at play. Well, Neil, thanks for having me uh, in the first instance. It's a pleasure to be on. I I feel like people, uh, in the broadest sense, don't really appreciate the differences between the various elements that we're talking about here. And this COP, you know, in the pavilion setups, in the in the speeches, in in the um, in the outputs from various parties, being misinterpreted by the media and others, this COP has really been juggling with a lot of those a lot of those contexts. So, maybe if we just unpack it for a moment, and, and we'll we'll take it one step at a time, because the adaptation finance of one hundred billion dollars a year, as you said, there's been years in the making years of conversation under the bridge and fundamentally was a compelling promise by various nations to put money in this in this fund and it has a mechanism for getting that money away be it the the green climate fund or or, or other processes basically And, and its goal is to help countries to adapt to the impacts of climate change so you know, the easiest ones that people go to for this will be things like flood defense. But in countries like the Marshall Islands, adaptation might very well be relocation of their communities. And that's what we're hearing loud and clear out here. So you've got this requirement or this previous promise uh, over a decade old. Uh, And uh, one of the first reports we had at this COP last week was that the scale of investment now is actually in the trillions per year um, and that we kind of have a catch up finance requirement. So, yes, please, let's make it as far as 100 billion. But let's everybody acknowledge that actually the underinvestment for years and, and obviously also climate change rapidly expanding over that period of time as well, uh, which all the data has kind of shown has just exacerbated those requirements. And if we had no other thing on the agenda around adaptation um, type issues, I think this COP would have been able to really latch onto that 
and really push it forward quite quite hard and you would have you know you'd been back in the traditional conversation of mitigation and adaptation and just for the listeners to kind of just play it out for us mitigation is about reducing emissions so that we have less impacts adaptation is about insulating ourselves from the impacts and then you have this third category this loss and damage category which is i've mitigated i've adapted um, but I'm still experiencing a loss or a damage related to climate change. And, you know, fundamentally, there's there's a this this was always been and, and you rightly pointed out that uh, various agreements in the past have avoided conversations of liability, avoided putting too fine a point here on the culprit versus the um, versus those that are suffering the most and so on because the text couldn't get through the the, the cut process fundamentally and what we're finding is and i suppose we have to thank the glasgow pact in a way because the, the glasgow dialogue is what the parties are in at the moment around loss and damage and it was expected to be a two-year dialogue and I think the, the, the amount of progress that we can expect to see on this issue in, in these two weeks is going to fundamentally be an agreement on the work program to try and get to a resolution for next year, if possible. Although early drafting indicates that that might actually even be another year onto that. But John Kerry flagged um, quite strongly on Saturday how, how he rejected the notion of setting up a new financing mechanism for loss and damage. And in part, that is because it took so long to get the adaptation finance mechanism stood up. That'd be branch one. Branch two of the reluctance is what it does on a liability side. And, and how do we actually make this something that can work in a contained fashion like adaptation? You know, where there's a need identified, you apply for funding and so on. Whereas loss and damage has this kind of open-ended risk nature to it that fundamentally is, is challenging for any economy to expose itself to without some rules. And here, I think there's a strong link to the private sector conversation as well, Neil, where, you know, when we think about loss and damage on the private side, we're thinking about insurable events and non-insurable events or insurable assets and non-insurable assets. And sure enough, uh, John Kerry and others are thinking about this, too, in terms of if there's a loss and damage mechanism established, does that also invite private sector loss and damage claim? Does it invite other obligations from the wealthy nations to the global south beyond just country suffering uh, and people suffering in the broadest sense. So, you know, back to the top of your question, has it, has it been a hindrance? I would say it's such a big topic that it has absolutely divided focus at this COP. And if we weren't talking about loss and damage, I think we'd be really very much full bore on adaptation. But, um, you know, most commentators that I've talked to out here would see this as the sign of the, the progression of the COP process as well, that, you know, we have to kind of incrementally tackle these topics. Um, and so for, for those of us that would, uh, 
would uh, you know be more inclined to drive things to conclusions before moving on to the next thing. I think COP twenty seven shows that uh, you know the wheel of change continues to turn, and um, and I, I would I would imagine that we're we are talking about this now out of desperation that's been experienced around the world. I think if we had a more stable um, global climate uh, in twenty twenty two, maybe loss and damage could have been delayed for a couple of more years. But um, but that's not where we are. Yeah, uh, that, that that's a very good analysis, Stephen. Um, and, and part of it is that some of the countries, the biggest countries who are looking for compensation, um, aren't even present. The heads of state haven't come. So the the if you like the the tone of the negotiations, um, which is often set in the first few days by the heads of state, the signs aren't as good as they were perhaps last year. Yeah, and you know Mary Robinson um, came out on Saturday as well, and and she's basically been on every pavilion in 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 COP twenty seven. She's she's a very hard worker in terms of getting around, but in uh, in one of her first pavilion discussions, she did talk about the tone that was set at world leaders, uh, at the world leaders summit, and she made the observation that all of the ambition, all of the hope. Um, by and large, came from countries that we would we would consider to be in the global south. While all of the temperament or the the kind of um, COP twenty seven will be a, an interim COP type dialogue was reserved for those of the G twenty and others that actually showed up. So very much, I think um, you know, from a tone perspective. They they solidified that COP twenty seven would be a stepping stone COP very early in this process. Okay, so n- not not quite as high profile as last year, but valuable nonetheless. It is the only game in town. Absolutely. So I'd be interested in your insights on the UN's food security initiatives, especially the ongoing joint work on agriculture, which I believe was established five years ago at the COP in Fiji. Uh, and the Coronidia roadmap seeks to promote a more holistic approach on food system resilience, involving research on soils, nutrient use, water, livestock, methods for assessing adaptation, and the whole socio-economic and food security interventions of climate change. So where do we stand, and how do you think COP27 might take things forward? Yeah, and and you know this is probably one of the shining lights coming out of COP twenty seven. Neil, um, the Coronivia roadmap, as as you pointed out, five years in the making, and a pretty comprehensive set of draft texts coming forward from that technical group and coming up through the the subsidiary body structure of the UNFCCC. Here, the the recognitions are exactly, as you would have said, a holistic approach on food system resilience. They're pointing to nutrient use. They're pointing to livestock management, sustainable food systems. And look, there was a dedicated day at this COP on agriculture and adaption, which, you know, um, in, in, in the last series of COPs was relatively novel. And then... Throughout the entire programming of the, the two weeks, it, it has been center stage on so many pavilion fronts. The UN's 
food food and agriculture organization uh, was stood up over the course of the last year and that has a pavilion with lots of uh, program around it. That IPC estimate that agricultural land productivity would has already decreased by 21% compared to the counterfactual scenario. If I want to put that in just some context, the counterfactual scenario where we are today, we are losing 23 hectares of soils. They're being degraded at 23 hectares per minute. An area the size of Greece is being degraded in terms of soil quality per annum right now. And it's a double whammy because not only is it causing stress on the food system, on the agricultural system, it's also releasing an awful lot of carbon. And that actually was probably one of the big aha moments here on uh, at, at COP27. And I think that's, I think it's an important story because it's not necessarily the one that we're playing with in in Ireland right you know we're we're talking about agricultural emissions and reducing agriculture and 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 look don't get me wrong the coronavia roadmap is not designed to talk about Ireland's agricultural um industry it's to talk about um you know agricultural across the world as it plays out in small small holdings and so on but it's still important that we don't lose sight on the fact that we're part of a global food system and its resilience and sustainability is something that we can play a role in. So the the other thing that the roadmap is, is calling for is that investment in innovation and that investment in, in research and technology to be applied um, you know, under the other mechanisms of, of the COP process from technology transfer and others. To be able to harness this this opportunity of regenerative agriculture and and sustainable food systems, and if it if it makes its way all the way to um to the to the COP twenty seven platform in the draft text that's been produced so far, it will place agriculture uh, and agriculture's link to adaption and agriculture's link to mitigation center stage for future COPs. And it will be it will be one of the the major outcomes of this COP twenty seven that will have resonance, I think, um, into into future programs. Yeah, I think that that would be a classic example of restorative justice, and and we hope that it, it will succeed. We need to follow the science. Yes, and and just so you, <laughs> another panel of Mary Robinsons today with the WHO, where um, you know it was made quite clear how maintaining that agricultural system in different communities is climate justice at play uh, and it's one of the you know the worst things we can do is to you know just let these um, communities suffer climate change damage and not not grant them the opportunity to actually fend for themselves and localize their own solutions which in the main are tied up in in agricultural processes Stephen, um, it, it's, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your input. And I look forward to catching up with you again once you're back in Dublin. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Neil, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of IBEC Response. For more episodes, please visit ibec.ie slash podcasts.